Every epic tale of adventure requires a call to action. A call out of the comfort and obscurity of everyday life to embark on a new journey, a new adventure. For example, without a plea from a distant princess, Luke Skywalker may never have left Tatooine. We'd uh, perhaps have gotten to go to the Tashi station to pick up those power converters that he was whining about. That's actually a running joke in my family that anytime you experience a mild inconvenience, you, you say, but I was gonna go to the Tashi station to pick up my power converters. <laughs> Without hosting an unexpected meal for a dozen boisterous dwarfs with a quest, Bilbo Baggins may never have stepped foot out of the Shire. Without the sacrificial desire to lay down his life for the sake of his brothers in arms, Steve Rogers would never have been selected for the super soldier program and become Captain America. Every epic journey requires a call to action, an inciting event, a starting line for the hero to rush off from. This morning's text will drag us out of primeval history and into plain old ancient history. <laughs> um, we're going into the patristic period, the patristic history, as we begin to discuss the lives of the fathers of Judaism, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's sons. We will embark on the grand journey of Abram's life by hearing how God called him out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We'll hear about Abram's inciting incident, which drew him out of the land of the Chaldeans and out of Haran to leave all that he'd known and to walk with God. So let's begin by diving into Genesis 11, verses 10 through 26. We begin today's passage with another genealogy, two genealogies actually, um, First, we will look at the descendants of Shem and then the descendants of Terah. Now, I wanna start off this reading by giving you some freedom for when you have to do public reading of scripture. <laughs> at some point in your life, you will probably need to pronounce some of the names in these genealogies that we read. Maybe you'll be doing a scripture reading here at church or reading to your children or leading a Bible study. Whatever the situation may be, if you're in the life of the church for long enough, you'll need to pronounce some unusual names. Um, so John has had to do this a lot so far, as this is the sixth and seventh genealogies in Genesis. Uh, so here's the freedom I'm offering you. The way you pronounce ancient names does not actually matter. So long, so long, with one caveat, as people can follow along when they're reading. <laughs> because uh, here's the truth of the matter. We're not pronouncing these names like the ancient people were. Modern Hebrew speakers probably aren't even pronouncing the names as the, as the ancient uh, patristics were. So the function of a standard of pronunciation is only so that you can communicate more effectively. So as long as you're pronouncing them in a way that doesn't impede communication, you're doing it right, don't worry. <laughs> um, don't worry about the standard of or correct pronunciation, just read it so that others are able to follow along. And also trust the English translators who wrote this in English characters for you. They're gonna get you close enough that it won't matter. With that said, let's dive into the text. Genesis 11, 10 through 26. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. 
And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Ru lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, I'm not going to spend too, too much time on these individual genealogies this week, as uh, I feel like John has covered a lot of ground in terms of what we can glean out of genealogies. Um, and also because I want to focus on the call of Abram when we get to chapter 12. But I do want to draw out a few points of interest. First of all, this genealogy follows a road map. It mirrors Genesis 5. Mirrors Genesis 5 very well. There are 10 names between prominent individuals in each text. From Adam to Noah, there are 10 names in Genesis 5. And here in Genesis 11, there are 10 names between Shem and Abram. Does anyone recall back to John's sermon on Genesis 5 uh, a few months ago, what the genealogies are called in Hebrew? I'll just, I'll go ahead and answer that one. They're, they're called Toledotes. Toledotes. It kind of sounds like Hollandotes, if, that's, if that helps. <laughs> Both here and in chapter 5, the Toledotes are following the line of promise. They bypass the individuals that are considered to be the seed of the serpent, to trace where the seed of the woman is. Again, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman are terms used all the way back in Genesis 3 to describe these two kinds of people that will be at war with one another. From the seed of the woman, we're to expect a wounded victor that will conquer the seed of the serpent. So these Genesis genealogies are tracing the promise down through the generations. They're tracing the promise down through the generations. They're saying, hey, we're expecting this guy, waiting for this guy to come conquer the seed of the serpent. And so they watch. They watched the line of promise with intentionality. This required careful consideration and intentional meditation on the theology of this promise by the authors of Genesis. They are recognizing God's promise being actively kept when they trace these genealogies. They're recognizing that God is the faithful promise keeper. And so they're going to wait and watch for his promise by remembering the seed of the woman and the line of the promise. Now, some of you just heard me say the phrase authors of Genesis and got concerned. <laughs> um, you're like, did you say authors, like plural? Yes, I did. And I'm not denying that Moses certainly is the author of Genesis. What I'm doing whenever I say authors is I'm recognizing that Moses is an author in the way that a non, uh, or a historical auto or a historical biographer might be an author. He's collecting information from the elders of Israel, stitching them together and adding thematic adjustments. So what I'm doing whenever I say authors is I'm just acknowledging that Moses received these stories from the elders of Israel's community who had kept these stories, this history, orally up until now. They pass these stories down at festivals, at celebrations, at religious gatherings, and at family dinners. These were their campfire tales, their legacy. With regard to oral tradition, 
Much has been made of passing down history orally. Modern historians often want to disregard it as an unreliable way of passing down history. Oftentimes we think of the telephone game that kids would play where everyone sits in a circle and whispers a phrase from one person to the next and the last person in the chain has a completely different phrase than the first person started with. This is a completely inaccurate analogy for how oral, oral cultures would have transmitted their history. These historians fail to understand how significant a people's history was to them. They did well to maintain their history's integrity. So we can be assured that through the guiding of the spirit, through the ages of these stories being passed down at festivals and campfires and in religious ceremonies, that Moses received and recorded true history. Now I say all that because it will be important to recognize for next week. It will be important to realize how the elders of Israel acknowledged Abram, how they perceived him, and the initial stories that they introduce him with. So the fruition of this, of this whole discussion, of this whole comment here, it will be, will be more recognized next week. So get excited for that discussion. Um, one more significant note about this genealogy. You may recognize that the ages of the individuals in this genealogy are much, much shorter than the ages that have previously been recorded in Genesis. Now, originally, I wasn't, I wasn't going to talk too much about this, but in my research, I found something really interesting. The common answer I've heard about why this happened is that the expanse of water that was over the earth that then became the flood waters had some sort of effect on human aging. It changed the world's ecology, ecology my bad, in such a way that humans aged much more slowly, much longer lifespans. And post-flood, that wanes away. Now, here's what I discovered that I thought was interesting. There's a clay tablet named the Sumerian King List that we've uncovered, and it's been dated around 2100 BC, which is right around the time that Abraham was alive. The Sumerian King List has a record of Sumerian kings alongside the years that they were reigning, and the ones prior to the flood had dramatically longer reigns than the ones after the flood. Now, given that Genesis' account of the flood includes the destruction of all peoples, I don't know how much continuity there is between the Sumerian kings before the flood and after the flood, but the archeology span is interesting nonetheless. We have an independent document that attests to the same trend that we see in Genesis, that people lived for much longer times before the flood versus after the flood. That being said, the reigns of the Sumerian kings before and after the flood were both dwarfed by the lifespans of the people recorded in Genesis. It's, it's not comparable, but the phenomenon is interesting nonetheless. And before we get to the fun stuff in Genesis 12, we've got a bit more homework to do. Uh, we have the seventh Toledot, the seventh genealogy in Genesis, the descendants of Terah. Now, if you know anything about Genesis, the number seven is a big deal. So it's interesting that the seventh Toledot, the seventh time that that word is used, is the one that sets up the story of Abram. So let's go ahead and read Genesis 11, 27 through 32. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, and Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran and the father of Milcah and Iscah. 
Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Again, I just want to draw your attention to a few things from this passage. Ur is a prominent city in southern Babylonia. God is calling Abram out of Babylon, out of Babylon, the same country, the same empire that would eventually force the Israelites into exile. They would be exiled too. The Chaldeans end up being a vicious people that is fearsome, a fearsome neighbor of Israel. Think to Habakkuk, where God tells Habakkuk that even in the midst of Israel's darkness and evil, he will use a more evil people to bring wrath upon them. That people is the Chaldeans. From that vicious people, God draws out Abram and his family. Also note that there are two wives listed in this genealogy, Milcah and Sarai. The genealogy takes time to point out that Sarai was barren. This is not merely a side note, but a theme and an explanation. It's a theme and an explanation that we can look for. Now, barrenness is a common theme in the line of promise in Genesis. Sarai struggles with barrenness. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, struggles with barrenness. Rachel, Jacob's favored wife, struggles with barrenness. Yet all three of them end up having children. It is part of God's faithful providence that the line of promise continues through three women that are incapable of having children. It also may thematically call forth to another woman who is incapable of having children, not because she's barren, but because she's a virgin. The typology illustrated here may be fulfilled in Mary's miracle of a virgin birth. God is continually producing miracles in the vein of begetting children in order to preserve his promise and his people. Through these women, he maintains the seed of the woman and delivers the savior of the world. Absolutely incredible. Now Sarai's barrenness is also an explanation, but it's an explanation for something that we don't know needs an explanation quite yet. Because we haven't treated this like Jewish meditation literature like it is, we haven't noticed that there's a pattern in Genesis that we've already kind of touched on. All these Toledotes all had 10 names in them. This one only has eight. Interesting, why only eight? Well. The answer is right there in the text. It's because Sarai is barren. If Sarai wasn't barren, there might be more children around that might fill out this Toledot. But this explanation is yearning for the completion of the 10 names. The 10th being the one that the story will be passed on to. Now, if you know Abraham's story, you know that he will have two children, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac will be the completion of this Toledot, of this genealogy. It satisfies and completes it thematically. And Isaac is then the next main character that will carry forth the story of Genesis. Man, isn't the Bible so cool? One last note before we jump into chapter 12 and the call of Abram. What does Abram's name mean? Most Hebrew scholars consider it to be some combination of the words father and exalted or exaltation. So exalted father is, is a common translation. 
And this is an interesting name for a man whose wife is barren. Again, it's a theme calling forth to the, for the completion of this Toledot, this genealogy. It's begging to be satisfied by the births of Ishmael and Isaac. And those of you who know Abram's story will know that his name is to become Abraham, which means father of a multitude or father of many nations. See, this genealogy and Abram's name are already setting up the story for the next several chapters of Genesis. The tension is all going to be around Abram and his progeny. And this is made more explicit in chapter 12. So let's look there now. Chapter 12 of Genesis marks the beginning of the tale of Abram or Abraham's life. I'll likely be using those two names interchangeably, just know I mean the same person. I was actually initially intimidated to preach this sermon because the sheer significance of this passage is crazy. This is a hugely important passage and one that would take weeks to cover all of the implications of. Lucky for you, I got assigned it, so John can't split it up into a two or three week sermon series on three verses. These three verses are a magnifying lens. See, the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover 2,000 years of primeval history and about 19 generations of humans. And then the next 38 chapters of Genesis will cover four generations and a couple hundred years. So why has the pace slowed so drastically? These verses are what link these two sections together. They're the magnifying lens through which we will read the remainder of Genesis. So let's dive into the verses then. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What we see here is a command given to Abram and then seven clauses that God will do in relation to that command. Abram is to go from his country and kindred and father's house. God will then one, show him a land, two, make him a great nation, three, bless him, four, make his name great so that he will be a blessing, five, he will bless those who bless Abram, six, curse those who curse Abram, and seven, will make Abram a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's a lot. It's a pretty good deal. Abram just has to leave his homeland and God will do all that. It's incredible. Well, in both senses, this is a more costly and more rewarding command than we can imagine. It's more rewarding because this is pretty much all any human could have wanted in that day and age. This would be like God coming to you today and saying, I'm gonna satisfy all your material desires Leave your home and your family and I'll make you wealthy and overflowing with joy. You'll have a loving and kind family. No need to work, vacations whenever, as often as you want. It's like that kind of promise. It's incredible. It's an incredible call that Abram's been given. But make no mistake, the cost of this command to Abram is high. 
Look at the command God gives to him. It's threefold. First, leave your country. Leave your country, leave the place that you've always known, and go and be a foreigner. Second, leave your kindred, your people. Think of this like your community. Think about it like God asking you to leave your church. These are people that you love and care about and have walked with. And even for Abram, it's more impactful because these people represent some sense of safety and stability to him. In a land that lacks law enforcement, your community is what would fight justice, fight for your justice, or fight for justice on your behalf. He loves these people, and he's going to have to leave them. Third, leave your father's house. That is, leave your family. Now, our modern era of interconnectedness has caused us to forget a lot of the pain of being separated from our loved ones. Now, everyone in this room was born after the invention of the telephone. I checked. And even before that, we had a functional mail system in the US. So we're a culture that hasn't known this level of separation for centuries, for centuries. When Abram leaves, he is not going to see his father, his mother, his brothers, his sisters. He's not going to see them again. He won't speak to them again. He won't receive letters from them. God is saying, this is the last time you'll see these people. And that's a high cost. It's a high cost for a high blessing. But it's not without purpose. God recognizes that Abram is living amongst, amongst pagans right now. He's living amongst idolaters. And if he tries to follow God in the midst of this community, he's going to be led astray. And so God knows. He's like, you need to pay this cost or else this won't happen. God's command here is intense. In Hebrew, oftentimes to intensify a verb or an adjective, the author will repeat the word twice in a row. My favorite example of this is in Judges with King Eglon. Um, Eglon is the very fat king that Ehud stabs in the stomach and then his fat swallows up the sword. The text describes Eglon as being heavy, heavy, very fat to describe his fatness. Here, God's command repeats the verb twice. It's like, it's like go on, get, get out of here. Some translators have said, go get yourself out of your country. It's an intense command and it's costly. And this is telling for us. God is not afraid to give his people a command that will cost them everything. Some may be called to do missions in a war-torn area like Ukraine. Praise God for Matty Ellis and Hunter McClinn. Some may be called to give sacrificially of their income to the point of living meekly. We've got to understand that our lives are not our own. And so the call of God on our lives must be heeded. There will be times that you have to forsake your comforts for the sake of the gospel. There will be times that you have to forsake your comforts for the sake of the gospel. And it's not enough to stay in your country with your people and in your father's house. Here's the beauty of this, though. We have been freed from clinging to these things. See, the worldly comforts, the worldly pleasures that we love, and yes, we love them, and oftentimes they're even good, we're free to leave them behind because, because we have something better. We have the grace and truth of the gospel. We have the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and we need not cling to anything else. 
This is the very reason why the gospel is abhorrent to many unbelievers. So you, you want me to give up alcohol and drugs and sex for what? For following Christ? Why on earth would I do that? They're asking that, that question with incredulity because they have not known the goodness of Jesus Christ that allows us to forsake those worldly pleasures. They have not known that Jesus Christ is the greatest and only treasure worth pursuing. He is our peace and our pleasure. He is our light and our delight. And they don't understand because the eyes of their hearts have been blinded to the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Pray then, pray then that the Holy Spirit might lift that veil and that they might know him. One more note about the command God gives to Abram. He says, go to a land I will show you. That means Abram doesn't know where he's going. He's going to a place that God has not shown him yet. We'll talk about this more next week as Abram actually steps out in faith and does this and what that means. What do we call it? when someone takes God at his word and steps out in a risky way, trusting that God will be there. We call that faith. Faith. We call that faith. Abram has faith when he steps out on God's promise to him here. More on that next week and in the ensuing chapters. After God shows him a great land, what's he going to do? It's going to make of you a great nation. Now, just based on your knowledge of modern geopolitics, did God maintain this promise? <laughs> yes. The fact that there's still an Israel around today, that there are still Jews from the line of Abram around today is a clear apologetic for the truth of at least one of the Abrahamic faiths. Like the Jews have been oppressed by everyone, every notable regime for the past 4,000 years has been at odds with the Jews at one point or another. And they're still here. They're still around. Notice who isn't here. The Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans. All of these would have been considered greater empires or nations than Israel ever was, and yet they have remained while the empires have risen and fallen around them. God made Abram into a great nation. We will see the development of this nation play out through the rest of Genesis. We'll also see in the New Testament as Austin read earlier in Galatians, that the, men, the people of Abram's great nation today are people of faith. People of faith are children of Abram and members of this great nation. You can think to, to Second Peter, where it says that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. We've been made, we've been grafted into this nation. So God is going to make Abram a great nation. And then the next clause says, he will bless him. A blessed great nation. God does bless Abram specifically in, the, in his life. In just a couple chapters, we'll see how through an encounter Abram has with the Pharaoh, that he received a ton of livestock. So much livestock that it becomes a point of contention between him and his nephew Lot. Abram became a wealthy man with much livestock and a house full of servants. He was indeed blessed material and materially. He will also carry the blessing of the line of promise, that is, the seed of the woman. And next comes the clause, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I'm actually going to skip this one for the time being and return to it at the end. On to the fifth and sixth clauses. God will bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse Abram. Bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. This is a theme that we will see pop up repeatedly throughout the rest of Genesis. Those who treat Abram and his progeny well will be blessed and those who mistreat them always suffer. This is God's providence at play, preserving the line of promise, the seed of the woman. We'll see it next week when Pharaoh, even though he's ignorant of his wrongdoing, is punished for dishonoring Abram. We'll see it happen again with Abimelech for the same sort of thing. Later in Genesis, we'll see it happen for Jacob. Initially, Laban is blessed by Jacob's work and presence because he gave Jacob safe harbor. But when he begins to deceive Jacob and mistreat him, Jacob then is blessed still, yet at Laban's expense. It's at Laban's expense that he's blessed then. Laban then suffers for his mistreatment of Jacob. He's cursed for dishonoring the line of promise. And we can also think further in Genesis to Potiphar and Pharaoh at the end of Genesis with Joseph. They bless Joseph by elevating him to positions of authority out of slavery, out of prison. And they're both immensely blessed by his work for them. This theme will continue throughout the whole Old Testament. In fact, this theme is one of the many reasons that American Christians have been so supportive of Israel. And I'm not gonna spend time on this really because it's a heated debate and one that I have no idea what's going on in. Um, <laughs> but for Christians who hold that the promises God made to Abram and Israel are still in effect, blessing Israel would obviously be a goal. It'd obviously be a name because then America would in turn be blessed. God ends the call by saying, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Abram, every family in the world will be blessed. The same families and nations and that the authors of Genesis outlined in chapter 10, which John preached on last week, they're to be blessed by Abram. The same promise of Abraham being a blessing to the world is repeated in the Mosaic and Davidic covenants and is a prominent part of this old covenant. It is also speaking directly to you. Are you a member of a family on earth? Yes, you are. <laughs> you have been blessed by Abraham. God has chosen to bless you through Abraham, even now. Because the savior of the world was born to the line of promise. That is, he came from the great nation of Abraham. The savior of the world was born to the Hebrew nation from the tribe of Judah, a king like David, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, was delivered to us through the call of Abram. And if we don't recognize him as a blessing, I don't know what is. He came and lived a perfect life, died for our sins and rose again, a conqueror over death. And in light of this, we hear the call of the gospel. What do I mean by the call of the gospel? Well, let's jump backwards in our text to that fourth clause. God promises Abraham that he will make his name great so that he will be a blessing, so that he will be a blessing. Making your name great means to make your reputation prominent and powerful. Now, first of all, note that this promise is exactly, exactly what the builders at the Tower of Babel were trying to do. They were trying to make their names great. This is what they wanted to accomplish. 
They attempted to reach the heights of God, to elevate their names, to glorify themselves. So the presence of this promise in Abraham's call, Abram's call, should tell us that God has no issue with a man receiving glory. He has no issue with a man becoming great in the eyes of men. He does have an issue with idolatry. He does have an issue with men worshiping themselves or false gods. And he has an issue with a man receiving the glory that is due to his name. He is jealous for his glory. So the attempt to supersede the heights of God is the problem with the Tower of Babel. In some twisted way, they desire to usurp him, to usurp his glory and take it for themselves. Here, God desires to glorify a person who is obedient to him, a person who has faith in him, and it pleases him to do so. It pleases God to glorify a person who has faith in him. This is clearly a promise that God kept. Abram lived around 2150, 2100 BC. That's over 4,000 years ago. And in the vast majority of that time, Abram has had a notable influence on the world. In fact, depending on whatever metric you might use to evaluate this sort of thing, Abraham might be the most influential person who has ever lived. And if he's not the most influential, he's in the top five. Three major world religions, basically the only prominent monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all find their roots in Abram. That means if you discern that monotheism is true, Abraham's legacy is basically the only game in town. And here's the thing we can't miss. This was not by Abraham's doing. Abraham did not will this into existence. Abraham did not do this. He was living in obscurity. It was by divine grant that Abraham was lifted out of obscurity and given one of the peak positions of notoriety in all of human history. God selected him out of a place of darkness and brought him into his marvelous light of promise and providence. Listen to how God describes Abram in Joshua 24. He says, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. Abraham was an idolater. He worshiped false gods. There was nothing within Abraham that was worthy of the call, worthy of redemption. And yet God reached out and made this man with no children, the father of a nation and one of the most significant historical figures in the world. I'm pressing on this so hard because I hope that you'll see something. You also have received a call from the Lord. You have received a call to lay down your country, your kindred, and your family and step out in faith and follow Jesus Christ. The same call God made to Abraham is now given to you, equally undeserving. Equally undeserving. Abraham didn't deserve his call. We don't deserve ours. But the call is to lay down all that you know and follow Christ. The riches of this pursuit are far beyond what is promised Abraham here, far beyond. We're talking about life eternal, about unending joy, about ceaselessly worshiping God for his beauty and truth and delighting in the glory of a good God for all our days. The promises made to Abram here pale in comparison to the promises of the gospel. And that call has been given not to a historical figure, it's been given to you been given to you, brothers and sisters. 
We all love the grand adventure stories, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and Narnia and especially Pilgrim's Progress recently. An individual receives a call to come on this great adventure and charges out to blaze this glorious path. God has given you the call. The greatest and hardest journey of your life awaits for those who answer that call. Notice that Abram was not a man of notoriety before the call, and yet God's call made him great. It dragged him out of obscurity and gave him purpose. And it will do the same for you, for the glory of God. For his name's sake, he will lead you through murky bogs and up challenging hills and into the very heart of what it means to be a human. It will, if you will believe in Christ, that he lived a perfect life, was crucified and is raised from the grave to pay your penalty, then you can accept this call. If you place your faith in King Jesus, clinging to him and abandoning hope and all other things, whether material or country or kindred or family, then you embark. This is a journey of significant challenge and immaculate reward. Hear the call, believe the gospel, and live the life of a disciple of Christ. Hear the call, believe the gospel, and live the life of a disciple of Christ. God will in turn make you a blessing to others, as he did with Abram. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would take your call seriously. That we would take it seriously. To leave behind all that we know, to lay everything down at your feet and be willing to follow you, whatever the cost. Because we know that we have something greater. God, I pray that we would take this call seriously. That we would charge out courageously, facing the adversity ready for the grand adventure that you have planned for us for your glory. God, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for your text by which we may know you. We pray that you instill in us a character befitting your presence. We love you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.